I would like to ask as they are going that we please open our Bibles to the book of Mark. Today we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Mark has fewer teachings of Jesus than any of the other gospel accounts. And Mark only contains two extended passages of teaching, and they're found in Mark chapter 4 and then later in chapter 13. Mark is action-packed. It is the gospel where Mark almost never slows down. He keeps the pace rolling at a rapid progression until we reach the cross. But Mark does slow down on brief occasions, and one of them is right here in Mark chapter 4. Here, he slows down and he interrupts the narrative because he wants to highlight a very important discourse of Jesus. I want you to get the picture of what Jesus is encountering before we read the text. There are Pharisees that have started traveling all the way from Jerusalem to condemn Jesus, and they are doing so trying to undermine his ministry by blaming him and accusing him of being possessed by a demon. Now, his own family has also come out, and they have requested that he stop ministering. And the crowds that endlessly flow to him do so only for temporal gifts that he's offering. But by any, any ministry standards, this has been a hard day of ministry. If you go back and you read through all of those things that happened that I just mentioned, they occur in a single day. Yet, after the heat of the day dies down, Jesus goes out again to teach by the Sea of Galilee. And the way that he does this is to avoid the great crowds that were surrounding him by getting into a boat and rowing just a little offshore and using it as a floating pulpit as he rowed a comfortable distance out and began to preach. And he taught the crowd, but now he is teaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God that is uh, being proclaimed ever since chapter 1. But now he's going to shift the way that he does so into speaking with parables. The disciples who are following Jesus, they've left everything behind. They left their possessions, they left their jobs, they've left the nets, they are dedicating themselves to obeying Jesus as their master, and they're probably all beginning to wonder, why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? I don't get this. I mean, I'm following him because I see in him that he is truly the one who is going to save his people. Why doesn't everyone in this crowd, why doesn't his family, why don't these Pharisees also follow him? It's a good question. There are always going to be disparate responses to the gospel. And the Pharisees are seeing the same Jesus the disciples are, but they don't believe him. They're observing the miracles and exorcisms and sermons that are preached with authority, unlike anything ever experienced before or since. Yet, only a handful of people truly believed. After the resurrection, we are told that there are about 500 believers in Galilee. And we are also told that there are about 120 of them in Jerusalem that are gathered in the upper room. Now, it's likely that there were more than that, but that's a pretty large percentage of the population of Christians, most likely. Now, it, it is a legitimate question. It's a question that many of us have probably had. When you've shared the gospel or when you look out at the world around you, you've probably wondered many times the same question the disciples are wondering here. Why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? Why doesn't the message of the gospel always work the same way? Well, we learn in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, exactly why not everyone believes the gospel. And Jesus teaches us this by explaining using one of the most famous parables. It's known as the parable of the sower, or the parable of the seed, or sometimes called the parable of the soils. And there are two scenes that take place in the text. The first part is public, 
as Jesus preaches to the entire crowd from the boat. And the second part, the part that we're going to zone in most carefully today, is a private conversation that Jesus then has explaining the parable to the disciples. Please follow along as I read to you the passage in its entirety, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, and concluding at verse 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were, that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and a hundredfold. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the hearing and the preaching of the word. Father, I do come to you now giving great thanks. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, the very heavens declare your glory and the sky above, above shouts forth your works of your hands. You have called out the end from the beginning you have ordained everything in between. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all that will happen in this service today. And we know that when your word goes forth, it will not return void. And we pray that tonight you would give us ears to hear your word and that we would be receptive to hear the gospel. I ask that you will, by your divine power, overcome my weaknesses as a communicator in order to advance your kingdom this evening. So Lord, please direct my speech, soften my heart, Give me compassion for your people and strengthen me with boldness to proclaim truth. And Lord, I ask that you remove any distraction, physical or mental, from the hearers this morning, this evening. And I ask, Lord, that every word that is spoken would bring honor to your name and to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. 
It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Today we're going to approach this text very simply with a three-point outline, a typical old-school Baptist move on my part. We're going to look at the seed, the soils, and the sower. Let's begin by learning about the seed. Now remember that Jesus is speaking to an agrarian society. The average person in Jesus' day was way more familiar with farming methods than any of us are. And Jesus tells the disciples in verse 14 that the seed equals the word. It is the good news. It is the scripture. It is the gospel of the king, Jesus himself, and the message about his kingdom. I love this imagery of the seed. I think it's such an amazing picture that there's this tiny little insignificant thing. It literally looks like almost nothing. You can fill your palm with hundreds of seeds, and it looks as though there's nothing really there. Uh, Consider that tree in your favorite park that you go to, and you love to picnic underneath of it. You love, I I like going out to the Pin Oak section of Eisenhower with you guys every 4th of July, and I love gathering underneath those large trees that keep us from frying to death in the hot July 4th sun. All of those trees that are there, they started out with tiny seeds that could easily fit in the palm of your hand. Yet now they are these behemothic, gigantic figures towering over our picnic tables. If you just rewind the clock a little bit, you see that all the majesty of that tree was already held inside of that seed. Seeds represent potential. They represent future. And they are much more than they appear to be. And the word is described as a seed, as a message, as the future, as potential. Now, Peter, probably thinking back to this parable, wrote later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The seed is the word. The seed is the gospel. What is the gospel? It is that Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, came to save his people from their sins. He came to earth to die so that we might have life. He came to be our substitute in the great exchange that we just sang about. He came to take our sins and to give us life. He came so that he might give life and life abundantly. He came so that we might be free. And he did so by dying on the cross and taking our sin record and giving us his perfect righteous record. Then he was vindicated by God by being raised from the dead on the third day. And now he lives forever to be your Savior. That is the good news. That is the simplest I can make it. That is it in a nutshell. Jesus came to save. But what are the parables? Parables are extended metaphors. They're quick, pithy little stories in which Jesus parallels a well-known physical reality or a natural reality to a mystery about the kingdom. Jesus loved to speak in parables. John is the only gospel without any parables. Mark only has a handful of them. But between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have 59 recorded parables of Jesus in our Bibles. That is an incredible amount of parables in these four short accounts. This one, however, is important. This one, however, is foundational to the rest. It teaches you how to interpret all of the other parables. If you do not understand this then you will not understand the others. Jesus says as much when he remarks about the dullness of his disciples in verse 13. He says, do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? So this is the starting block for us to understanding how the parables operate. Well, what is the purpose in speaking in parables? Back when I was in high school, I had some very loving and well-meaning youth pastors who taught me many incorrect things. And I remember once having a youth minister teaching us about the parables. His name was Galen Lawrence. And he shared with me that uh, Jesus spoke in parables so that it would be so easy for us to understand. He, he spoke in parables because he knew that would be a way that we could quickly and easily comprehend all the complex things he was saying. He said these people were simple people. They, they were farmers. They were the average Joes of the ancient world. And so they couldn't understand the complex theology that he was presenting. So instead, he, he presented in these very simple stories so that everyone would understand. And then after he finished teaching that night, I spoke to him for a while. And I just started asking him some questions. I had been reading some of the parables recently in the book of Matthew. And I started asking about this parable and that parable and then the next parable. And I kept asking, what is this about? I don't understand it. And he was like, I have no idea. I, I'm sorry, I, just, I don't know either. And there's a reason for that. These were not intended to be simple stories. These were not intended to make things more clear. The reality is the parables of Jesus were used for the exact opposite purpose. There's something called the messianic secret. You'll remember this when Jesus on occasion would say, don't tell anybody about this, for he was not yet ready for the crucifixion. The time had not yet come. It was not the time for everyone to be incensed with who he was. And when the disciples asked Jesus why he's speaking in parables, he responds in verse 11 by saying, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So they will see Jesus, but they won't perceive Jesus. They will hear Jesus, but they will not understand Jesus. And then they will not turn and be forgiven. This is a quote, of course, from Isaiah chapter 53. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 6, where uh, the Lord commissions Isaiah to go forth and to preach the gospel. He commands him to give these prophetic utterances to all of the people of Israel. But he tells Isaiah straight up, look, they're not going to listen to you. He gives him that great call that we all remember. Who shall, I go send from, who shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, me, pick me. Here I am, send me. But immediately afterwards, that's when he says, keep on hearing, but uh, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull. They're heavy, their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. It's a faulty notion to think that God was sending the prophets thinking, oh man, maybe if I can just send Isaiah, maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe, oh look, he failed, nobody listened to him. Maybe if I send Jeremiah, maybe they'll listen to him. Oh no, they, they don't like him either. And then after, one after another, you have all of the major prophets, all of the minor prophets showing up and proclaiming the word. And, and it's not like God is wringing his hand saying, why won't they listen? Why can't they understand? He knew, and even in the commissioning of Isaiah, he declared, they will not hear you, they will not listen to you, they will not obey my word that I give through you. They're not going to hear. God told Isaiah before he even began, this is a futile mission in that sense. Your job is to be faithful, and you will not be fruitful. So then why, why speak God's word at all? 
Isaiah, what are, you, what are you doing, Isaiah? Spending your whole life preaching if you know not many people are going to hear this and turn and repent. Well, at the end of Isaiah 6, you see that there is a remnant that will hear. The word of God, including the parables of Jesus and including our evangelism, that serves two purposes. To those who are the outside, it hardens them. But to those who are the people of God, it is sweet, it is refreshing, and it always results in bearing fruit. So what I want you to do is now flash forward from the time of Isaiah back to the time of Jesus. Notice that nothing has changed. The people are still rejecting truth. The gospel is clearly displayed as Jesus walks among, among them, yet we see hard hearts all around. And the parables of Jesus are simultaneously judgment on those who reject him and mercy for those who receive. So why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? Well, the problem is not with the seed. No, the word of God is living and active. It's powerful, more than any two-edged sword. The problem is not with the seed. The message is not received because there is a problem with the soil. So let's now move to the point number two, the soils. The different patches of soil in this parable represent different kinds of people. Let's go one by one. The first kind of person is a soil called the path. We read about that in verse 15. It says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown to them. The path was a place that was packed. It was beaten down. I don't know if um, you've ever had this experience, but I grew up in the woods, and there were places in the woods that grass would never grow again. And why would it never grow again? Because my little bare feet and the brothers that I had, uh, we, we would run up and down through this one area of the woods and we would pack it tight. Also, from the time I was five years old, I was riding a little Honda 50 and then I kept graduating to bigger and bigger dirt bikes that I would ride through the woods and I would just cover those same spots over and over and over. And they became hard packed and nothing would ever grow there again. That's the place that is being described here. It's the places that were commonly used to traverse between fields. They didn't have barbed wire fences like we do now, so instead they would have little paths that would make their way wind through different, uh, different places in the fields. And those paths continued to be a path from generation to generation. So he says, look, when you're throwing the seed out, the, the ground is hard, and so these seeds never actually penetrate into the dirt. And what happens? Well... Birds come along and eat it. The path is the favorite place for the birds to come. That's where they go to eat their food. And Jesus explained to the disciples that Satan is like the birds just waiting to pick up the seeds from the hard ground. Now, I have been telling people this for a long time. Birds are evil. I don't like them. It's proof from the scripture that this is true. Now, are you aware of the significant significance of what's happening right now in this room? Right now, I am talking. And you are listening, hopefully. That's not that complicated. It's not that big of a deal in most instances. But in this case, when the word of God is being preached, there's something different being done. There's something special. There's something unique. There's something incredible that is happening beyond just regular communication, beyond just regular transformation of ideas. Uh, here, what we see happening is that we are presenting the very word of God. And do you see what we are being warned against? It's saying that there is an enemy that wants to steal that word away from you before it ever actually lands in your life and takes root. We have an enemy. We have an enemy that does not want you to hear and an enemy that wants you to fail to bear fruit. 
And it's sad, but there are people in churches all around the world that will gather this week and they will hear the gospel preached and it won't sink in at all. And they're going to be thinking about all of the other things going on in their life and they're going to ignore every word that is said to them. That's true both from a pulpit and in individual conversations. And there are people who will be more concerned with their lunch than they are with their own souls. There are people who will not even hear the words because they're going to sleep through the entire sermon. Unresponsive hearts will have the gospel stolen away from them before it's even able to sink into their mind. One of the things that I find so interesting is uh, when people share their testimony, uh, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that I get to hear people's testimonies often. And one of the things that I have taken note of is how many times people will say to me, I heard the gospel and I knew I have never heard this before. And I've begun to wonder how many times is that actually true? How many times is it actually true that this person has never heard anyone preach the truth before in their life? Because it is possible that that's true. But I would suggest that there are probably many who had never heard it with ears to hear, but they had heard it with their natural ears many times. They had heard the message of Jesus proclaimed from a variety of people and perhaps even a variety of pulpits, yet their ears were not ears to hear. And so they're right to say, I didn't hear it but only right to say that they didn't have the spiritual ears to hear it. They heard the gospel when their hearts were like the path, and the gospel was plucked away from them before it ever even sank in. It's as if those words never hit their ears at all. In the first soil, the seed didn't even have time to germinate. And notice, the blame here is not actually placed on the devil. It's not placed on anywhere except for the soil itself. Yes, Satan does come and steal away the seed, but the primary blame is set against the heart of the individual who is ambivalent about the gospel. Your heart is hard, and you will not hear. This is the hard soil, the packed soil. This is the path. It is the soul that cares nothing about the gospel. There is a second kind of soil called stony ground. We read about this in verses 16 and 17. And there are, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, Jesus says. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. Now, this is not speaking about gravel. This is not speaking about pebbles. If you've ever tried to plant a garden here in Levittown, I'm assuming your backyard is probably like ours. Uh, we dug up hundreds and hundreds of little rocks in the dirt when we were trying to put together a garden for the first time in Levittown. But that's not what's being referenced here. The word that's being used here is the word for bedrock. It's like there's a, a shallow layer of dirt, but there's no room for the roots to go very deep because there's something very hard, even more hard in, in the metaphorical instance here, than the path would be but it appears from the surface like it's not. It appears from the surface like there's good soil there. But you throw the grain out, and then it fails to take root because it can't truly reach far into the ground. The farms in Israel are riddled with this kind of ground. The people understood exactly what Jesus was saying. The word falls on the ground there, and it appears from the surface that it's being received. The message of the gospel looks like it's being accepted. But just below the surface, the ground is still hard. Someone can seem to receive the gospel with joy, 
But when the pressures of this world heat up, they want nothing more to do with the gospel. Now, this could be Judas that we're speaking about. He listened to Jesus. It appeared as though he received it with joy. Yet, in just a few short years, he betrayed him. In the words of the author Paul Tripp, he says, The test for your receptivity of the word is not your spontaneous, momentary joy. Let's not be fooled. The test for your true receptivity of the word is later, outside of the room, when the hardships of life and the persecutions of the gospel drive you beyond your own strength and your wisdom and your righteousness. Hard times will either confirm your belief in the word or they will cause you to doubt the word. Many people pray prayers in a moment of joy. And they cry tears in a moment of guilt. They walk an aisle. They repeat the words. They get baptized, etc., etc., etc. But no fruit will ever come from that because the root cannot grow. Uh, let me give you an example of this from the Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 33 through 35, Jesus points out what's being done here in the lives of many Jews. It says, You sent John. He bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, speaking of John, was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. They were briefly interested in the light, but for them it was a passing fad. They, they listened to him. They got excited. They went out and they got baptized by John. But he said, you were willing to rejoice for just a moment in his light. It was the flavor of the week that quickly grew bitter for them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ demands much more than a temporary fixation. Consider the following extended quote from German theologian Helmut Thielicki. He says, There is nothing more cheering than transformed Christian people. But there is nothing more disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity. Who have been sown with thousands upon thousands of seeds but in whose lives there is no depth and no root. Therefore, they fall away when the first whirlwind comes along. It is the half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because their dry intellectually, intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism never stand the test. In the rocky soil, the seed begins to germinate. But it's doomed from the start because what lies beneath the surface is the same rebellion against God that we saw in the first kind of soil. Now, the third kind of soil contains many thorns. We read about this in verses 18 through 19. It says, And others are the ones among, whom, uh, among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Once again, we see the seed is beginning to germinate. It looks as though it's going to grow. The plant shoots up, but it is quickly destroyed by the thorns that grow up along with it. Uh, allow me to illustrate this to you with a personal story. Once, many years ago, um, I was at a church where I was working, North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, and uh, there was a woman, an elderly woman, who came in during the service, and she sat right next to me, uh, there was probably no seats in the room. It was very full. And she came in, and she, I just kind of scooched over, and she sat down next to me. I found out later she had literally never been in a Christian church before in her life. And so she didn't know what she was supposed to do. She didn't understand the etiquette. So get the picture. I'm sitting on the second row. 
which in that church is incredibly close to the pulpit. And so I'm sitting there watching the, watching the sermon from Ed Moore, and she sits next to me, and for the entire sermon, she does not stop asking questions. She wants to know what everything means. And I'm trying as graciously as possible to answer quietly and to say everything quickly because I don't want to be a distraction for everyone else, and especially I don't want to trouble the pastor who is preaching at the moment. But it appeared as though after the service, she truly understood. It appeared as though she really trusted the Lord. It appeared as though she had become saved. But roughly one year later, she left the church and denied the faith. But why did she do that? She did so. She had the change of heart because she was unwilling to give up the things of this world. She was unwilling to give up an immoral relationship that she was in. Kent Hughes puts it well this way when he says in his commentary in Mark, this thorny ground portrays a divided heart, a heart divided by irreconcilable loyalties. This heart makes some gestures towards Christ, but the cares of this world, the distractions of this age draw it back. It is pulled in other directions, leaving no room for spiritual concerns. The deceitfulness of riches draws them with the promise of great good. This involves buying things that you do not need to impress people you do not like with money that you do not have. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a helpful term to describe what's going on here. He uses the idea of treasure. Is Jesus your treasure? That's a very important question to answer. This is the kind of soil that seems so prevalent throughout the landscape of Long Island. So many people want just enough Jesus so that they can be spiritual. They want just enough Jesus to learn the lingo so they can fit in at a church service. They want just enough American Christianity to be able to fit into their life while not giving up the American dream. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, these people represented by thorny ground are intoxicated with the delusional thinking that says that their life is best spent in search of temporal gains. Money, status, power, achievements, relationships, trophies, all of that is going to fade away. It will burn away. It will come to nothing. If someone was actually able to accumulate all of these things, let's just say, for example, let's say even if they were able to gather everything they desired in their life to themselves and to keep them until they died, beware the preoccupied, divided heart. Even if they have all of them, they still die. And then they will answer to the Lord. Guard yourselves against the crafty pride of life that sneaks its way into your heart and says there is something more important than Christ. Possessions, power, prestige, pleasure, it's all going to pass away. Those things are worthless idols. They will choke away all possibility of spiritual sensitivity or Christian growth. There's a final kind of soil that's referred to in the passage. It's the good soil, found in verse 20. Jesus says, on this soil, the word does not get picked away by the devil. It does not lack roots. It does not get choked by the thorns. It grows to fullness, and it bears much fruit. It is a receptive heart. True disciples of Jesus have receptivity toward the word. The word is planted in them, and then it grows, and it bears fruit. Well, what kind of fruit does it grow? There's multiple answers that the New Testament gives us to this. Of course, probably what jumps into your mind first is likely the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
These are probably the fruits that you initially imagined, and that's true. These things are part of it. Uh, John speaks about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and Jesus promises that if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples in John chapter 15. Keith Allen just preached about this recently. And what fruit is he talking about there? He is talking about the fruit of faithful obedience to Christ. Christian, fruit is Christ-like living. It is the result of sanctification. The pastor and commentator John Gill notes, all true Christians produce quality fruit, but not all produce the same quantity. If you never bear any fruit, it gives evidence that you are not actually good soil. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, a good tree produces it does produce. It will produce. There is a guarantee, a promise. If there is no good fruit, there is evidence that there is a bad tree. Jesus does say to those who have an ear, let them hear. In this, Jesus is showing us that we are still responsible for the receptivity of our hearts. But now what I would like to do is I would like to see how this passage is speaking about salvation and how it applies to those who in an ongoing way are going to live out that salvation and be sanctified. In other words, this is talking about that initial coming into the kingdom. But I want to talk not only about that initial salvation, that justification moment, I want to speak about how this lives itself out in our lives every day. When you read your Bibles or listen to sermons or hear the admonishments of your family, do you do so with a heart that's receptive? Because that will indicate whether or not you are good soil. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to listen carefully. Uh, you, you might have come to church for any number of reasons. Maybe you came because somebody brought you and you kind of had no choice. You just had to be here. Uh, maybe you came here because you just kind of enjoyed the singing. Or, or maybe you're here uh, because you just wanted to figure out what goes on inside of this door on Wednesday night. Or maybe you're here because you have a passing interest in the things of God. Maybe you're here for intellectual reasons. You just want your mind to grow and your understanding of the Bible to be more thorough. There's a lot of reasons why people can come here, but what you should be asking yourself right now is, which kind of soil am I? Am I here for the right things? Am I going to receive this word and going to allow it to uh, germinate in my soul and grow and produce fruit? The Bible is clear that all who call on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you are here today and have not received Jesus in that way, I call on you to be saved. That is the most important thing that you can ever hear. But the Bible also says that as we move forward in our Christian life, that we are going to give evidence of that salvation moment. We are going to give evidence that we are in Christ if we are continuing on with him. What I'd like to do is I would like to consider the third point here and see how the sower fits into this story. Once again, I'd like for us to put ourselves in the sandals of these disciples that Jesus is talking to at the end of this passage. They're wondering, why are there 12 of us here? Why aren't there like 12,000 of us here? Uh, what is the plan, Jesus? You're supposed to be building a kingdom, and there's a small circle of us that are gathered around this little campfire here. Uh, there should be a lot more people here, Jesus. How is this supposed to grow? How is your kingdom going to come? It doesn't appear to be working. In verse 11, Jesus said to the disciples, The secret of the kingdom has been given to you. This parable is about the kingdom. This is made more clear in Matthew and Luke's writings about this parable. For example, Luke chapter 8 verse 1 opens the parable of the sower by saying, Soon afterwards he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. 
This parable is about the good news of the kingdom. So when we evangelize, what are we doing? We are sowing that seed of the gospel. But here in this passage, we are seeing that it is being cast out by the ultimate sower. We are seeing the person of the gospel proclaiming the gospel about himself. So when the disciples are wondering, how is this whole kingdom thing going to work out if so few believe? Jesus responds with the stunning statement that his kingdom cannot be thwarted. I'm going to cast out the seed, it's going to find good soil, and it is going to grow. We actually see this question arise, similarly to what I'm presenting now, from Luke chapter 13, verse 23, and it says, He, Jesus, went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved just be few? Are only a few people going to get saved, Jesus? He's looking around and saying the same thing the disciples are here. Jesus is the sower that went out to sow, and there is a promise of reproduction. There is a promise that some will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The kingdom of God is transferred from generation to generation as the seed of the word faithfully is scattered abroad, and it lands in good soil, and it produces a Christ-like life. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate missionary. He is the ultimate evangelist. He is the one who also, however, sent us to go. We are now the ones who are casting the seed. We are now the ones who are presenting the word of God to others. And when we are faithful to proclaim, there is an unstoppable force that is unleashed. When the good news lands on good soil, it produces life. It's possible for us to wonder, why aren't more people being saved? Why doesn't everyone believe? Why can't they see the truth? Well, the simple answer is that not every heart is good soil. When you go out and you share the gospel with people, whether it's your neighbor or your coworker, your colleagues, uh, maybe it's somebody who you have a long relationship with, maybe it's somebody you just met on an airplane and you know they're stuck with you for three and a half hours and they can't move, so you just share the gospel with them. Whatever it might be, as you're communicating with them, you need to understand that that message you are giving to them is good seed and it should land on some kind of soil. And it's gonna land on good soil sometimes. And when it does, the Lord will bring the increase. We preach the gospel to all these kids at Vacation Bible School. We preach the gospel at youth camp that's coming up this coming week. We preach the gospel every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night that we gather and at Bible studies and at community groups. We preach the gospel because it needs to land on good soil and it needs to produce good fruit. And the promise of Jesus Christ is that he is going to bring the increase. It's, it's possible for us to wonder why isn't it working when we're sharing the gospel? Why aren't all of these chairs full right now? Why can't everyone see the truth? Well, the simple answer is that they don't have a heart that is good soil. But I want to give you some good news. Hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, that's where all of us started. That's what all of us were at one point. And God can change the heart. God can give a person who initially appears as though they are the path they do not hear for decades, and God can give them a heart to receive. So when you are teaching others, when you are pointing them to Christ, pray that they would be receptive. Pray that they would receive. Because God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign over salvation, we can ask him that. We can ask him to change the heart of a person, because he is the only person that can do that. So we have a good message that we can put the good seed out, and that God can cause it to grow into good fruit. So that is a good message for us from the parable of the soils. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, please don't leave without talking to me. I want you to know the good Savior that preached this message originally. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray that tonight, with this message that we have heard from Mark, that you would help us to understand. So we might be able to understand not just this parable, but use this as an understanding lens for all of the other parables as well. We ask, Father, also that tonight, if there is anyone here who is not one of the good soil, someone here who is the path or the rocky ground or the thorny ground, Lord, I pray that you would please transform them, give them ears to hear so that they might respond to your message in faithfulness. And God, I pray in an ongoing way that anyone in the room right now who does know you, but their heart is growing harder, that you would give them a soft heart that is receptive to the gospel and that hears the word and that they live out their faith every day. In all of these things, Lord, we pray that you would give the increase, that you would give 30-fold, that you would give 60-fold, that you would give 100-fold to this church. Lord, I pray that as your word says that you would teach me the way of your decrees, that I might follow it to the end. Lord, I pray that that would be the story of every person in this room, that we would hear your decrees and follow them to the end. Give us understanding. Give us an undivided heart. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for his perfect life, for his atoning death, and for his resurrection. For without those things, Lord, the word could never be preached, and everything that I just said would be worthless. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. And I ask, dear Lord, that you would not allow the devil to quickly pick away the seeds of the gospel that have been proclaimed tonight, but that you would let the hearts of this congregation always be good soil that produces good fruit. And we praise you, Lord, for we know you work in our lives in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.